One, two, three, four. Happy anniversary, happy anniversary, happy anniversary, happy anniversary, happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary, happy Nancy Bryan. Happy anniversary, happy Nancy anniversary. Giles. So we debuted the show three years ago. Yep, December of 2016. And we have had some fabulous guests wonderful, in that time. Wonderful, We started off with a bang. We had great guests. Ron Reagan was on, and he predicted a lot of the stuff that we're dealing with right now. Right now. Joy Behar. Joy Behar was great, still fighting the good fight on The View. Lewis Black. He's still as funny as ever, and the very cute, very adorable... Jonathan, Jonathan Capehart. And Ross Chast, who we Ross just had. We love. Fabulous. We absolutely love all of our guests. We're so grateful. We love you all. We're looking to the future. And you know what is really cool about our show is the world yes. has taken note of the Giles it's Files. It's unbelievable, yeah. Isn't that right? From the Alps. The monks in the Himalayas. And Mother Africa. Thank you, everybody. You are too kind. Oh, thank you. Oh, thank that applause is so overwhelming. Yeah. You, you are too kind. Yeah. You know, the only thing I can say other than that, Nance. One, two, two three, four. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Welcome to The Art of Making Art, Part 2. In part one, we met New Yorker cartoonist Roz Chast and painter-sculptor Jules Arthur, two visual artists. But sometimes art happens in ways you take for granted. The artistry is there, but you don't even realize it. We're going to meet a sound engineer who shares her fascinating adventures working for CBS News and one of the hardest working men in show business, a stylist to the stars. When you meet somebody for the first time, if they ask you like what your line of work is or something like that, what do you say and then how do they react to that? Um, I always say that I'm a sound engineer for CBS News and I work in the field and um, I work with a crew, a camera, a correspondent, producer, but we mostly do. Um, we tape, you know, pieces interviews, elements for stories that are going to be on, you know, one of our platforms. And I think people sometimes are surprised that I'm doing that kind of work. I mean, I'm, I'm a woman working in a very male-dominated part of that industry on the production side. Meet Cindy Gomes, sound engineer extraordinaire and one of the coolest people we know at CBS News. So both of us Nancys have worked with Cindy, and she's terrific. She's a real pro, and she has some great stories to prove it. A special note to our listeners, during this interview, actual audio interruptions occurred while we were recording. We chose to leave them in to showcase the behind-the-scenes craft of Cindy's work. I like what I do. I like the fact that it's every single day is different. Every day is a new experience. I mean, I, I get to do some amazing jobs. I meet amazing people, and not just the celebrities, I mean, just average people who have incredible stories, you know, bad things that have happened to them and how resilient, I mean, just some really awesome situations. I mean, I've met presidents. I've been around some very, very, very important people. Tell us about what it's like to cover a Trump event from your work perspective and your person perspective. Okay. Um, 
the last event I did was in a place called The Villages, which is in Florida. And it's sort of a retirement community. Oh, yes, I've heard of that. And everybody drives golf carts. And it's kind of like, like being in a movie. It doesn't right. feel real. So being in that event where it already felt kind of surreal, he uh, just kind of soaks it all up because these people, they just love him. It doesn't matter what he says. The one thing that made me very uncomfortable was he always goes for the media and the press. And, you know, of course, he points to the back of the room and he starts saying, and, and, and they, you know, they're bad and they're going to ruin this country. Oh, and, nice. and so I'm sitting there, you know, with my headphones on and I'm saying, well, he's talking about me. So the people, they, they get all hyped up about it and they, you know, and they're clapping. And, and then it's, it's, it's uncomfortable and it's scary because you don't know what person or if there's somebody who doesn't like the press is going to turn on one of these days on us. You know, it's uncomfortable. Well, we've seen know? scenes like some right. of his supporters shoving people around. Right. So it's, it's very different. Like, I've never, I mean, I sort of experienced that a little bit during the primaries when he was running. But this is like, it's a whole nother, like, level. And it just, we already know, like, you know, with the El Paso shooting, and this guy was sort of felt, it seemed like he was inspired by some of that rhetoric. It, it just feels kind of dangerous to me to, to have to be there. But, and this is part of the work, you know, that's Do happening. Do they say anything to you when they recognize that they're pressed? Um, Any nasty no, remarks? Actually, not, not, well, not at this particular event. Uh, I have been in other places where you do kind of get a feeling of... Is that going to be a problem? Hostility. <laughs> that is going to be a problem. They're changing the windows. No, that's going to be fine. That quiets it down a lot. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, that's okay. Um, so you were saying uh, specific things that they've said to you. You said... Nothing specific to me. We're sort of lumped into this, every, all of us, technical, editorial, everybody, into this, you know, they're bad, they're bad, they're bad. And so that, it's, it's, not, it's not comfortable. I mean, I've, I've never experienced that ever. And I've been around candidates, presidents for over 20 years, and we never felt uncomfortable covering the president. Yeah, he's really mad. And it's like he's making... taunting, it's like he's taunting people you know yeah so it's it's to me it's worry I, it's worrisome Is, am i pulling am i pulling uh, yeah I you keep looking i'm not sure if it's you or it's you well i know you're shooting me oh, these okay. looks it's funny All right. All right. sound <laughs> is like the bane of my existence with this should i move the mic up or down or is it it could be rubbing against the lapel part of your i didn't glove. place it Cindy Gomes, sound person, is now placing the mic. Yeah, I bet that's going to be better because it's, it's not going to hit the fabric, right? Yeah, I think so. Are yeah. some people a little wiggy about being touched, you know, because the kind of work you do, you have to be really careful. And I, I've been fortunate, mostly guys do this work and they're very respectful and can you put this here and, you know, blah, blah, blah. You are one of only two women in my entire career mm -hmm. that does this kind of work. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if people react to you any differently or... 
I, you know, I, I have to admit that I am sometimes nervous with certain interview subjects, um, like yeah. especially celebrities and especially women. You know, I'm always nervous about, well, what are they wearing? What are they going to have on? And how am I going to navigate? I have a really funny story. How am I going to navigate getting a microphone on them? Are they going to even want me to mic them? And, you know, so most of the time people are generally cool and they let me do my thing and, and it's okay. But there have been a couple of situations where... You know, they didn't particularly want me to, you know, put the mic on them. Um, can I say? Yes. <laughs> we need names. Um, well, like Jennifer Lopez does not like to be mic'd. She prefers to have a boom. Um, and I think she probably just isn't really that comfortable with people kind of having to go underneath her clothing to place a microphone on her. And I get that because it can be uncomfortable the two situations that that stand out to me were um one with grace jones and the other with cardi b um basically grace jones um we're setting up to do an interview with her and she showed up and she was pretty lit um i don't know if she had been drinking but she was in rare form and so I already knew it was going to be challenging and she had on a a blouse that was see-through and she didn't have on anything underneath no bra nothing and so when I went over to place the mic on her of course I you know told her that I was you know did she mind if I if I got her mic'd up and she said no darling of course not and she just completely lifted up her shirt and basically she flashed me um and I (laughs) was startled and actually really not sure where I was going to put the mic at that point um and everybody had a good laugh it was pretty funny the second time was with Cardi B and it was a two-day shoot uh, several different locations, and when she showed up to the first location, we it was at a club that she, that she used to work at, and so I was trying to figure out how I was going to get her mic'd, and I think somebody from her camp said that I was going to have to get in the car and mic her before she walked into the club. So that's always pretty awkward because cars are small and tight and I didn't know what she'd have on or, or anything. So I go to the car and um, it's, it's pretty tight. And of course she has on an extremely tight, tight fitted um, long coat and I said hello to her and she completely didn't acknowledge me, didn't even look at me. It was like I was invisible. And then I was nervous and I'm like, okay, how am I going to do this? So she's sitting in her seat, her legs are crossed. And, um, I just proceed to start, you know, taking my, my microphone and the wire and I'm trying to sort of navigate and get up through and under her clothing to get the mic on the lapel. Um, which was extremely difficult because she didn't budge. 
She didn't help me in any kind of way. She never looked at me. And the whole time I am, my hand is in places where I don't think it should have been. And I'm totally uncomfortable. Um, and I finally string the, the, the microphone up so that I can get it attached to her lapel. But then I had nowhere to put the transmitter because A, where she's sitting down, um, and this, she really just has on like underwear underneath. So I'm like, well, I don't know where I'm gonna put this transmitter now. So I just kind of clipped it onto her boot and just hoped that when she got out of the car, it stayed on. Well, that was just a complete total nightmare for two days because for two days I had to, you know, mic her and have the mic clipped onto her boot, which fell off all day long, two days in a row. And, um, you know, so I was a, just a nervous wreck that um, the audio would be compromised, but somehow we managed to get through it. And, uh, and I'll never forget how awkward that was. Um, I, and I always feel like because I'm a woman, I think people, I would think that people would be more comfortable with, with, with me, but, you know, I don't know. I don't know if it's a, you know, a man or woman thing. I just think, you know, everybody's different and some people, you know, some people get excited. Uh, well, yeah, like, guy, you know, sometimes guys will joke and go, oh, oh, haven't had that much excitement in a while and, you know, stuff like that. Standard but, sound jokes. Right, yes. standard sound jokes, but, yeah. Um, I had a situation recently with Dionne Warwick. I went over to her before I started to put the mic on and I asked her if it was okay if I started to mic her. And she said, <laughs> she said, um, I, I prefer you don't. And so I just sort of thought, well, okay, well, how am I going to get the mic on it? So then I just proceeded to do it. And as I was pulling her, her shirt to go mic her, and I'm very gentle, uh, she just looked at me and said, I said I didn't want... <laughs> so I, I just ignored it. I had to do my job. She had to be mic'd. So I just kept putting the mic on her. And then I started to talk to her, and I told her a story about how I had been to her house many years ago and met her son, because I used to work in the music business. Okay. And, and I said, oh, I've been to your house, I, you know, when you lived in Beverly Hills and blah, blah, blah. And so that, like, broke the ice. Wow. And then after that, she was totally, totally fine with okay. me. I mean, I can imagine it's a very, it can be a very private kind of sensitive yeah, yeah. thing. You've got, you're great with it, though. You've always been well, excellent. I, I, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I don't know, I just, don't get me wrong, like, I am nervous a lot. That's the worst part of the job for me. Being nervous? Being nervous when I'm miking people. That's the, because that's the most personal right. you get with, with people. Mostly when it's a high profile situation with a high profile, you know, anchor or correspondent. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's nerve wracking. And I just want to get the mics on and go sit down and put on my headphones and then I'm good and I'm relaxed and I just got to listen. But the, that part of the job really does make me uncomfortable. Were you on a crew interviewing Obama? I, I traveled with Obama for a whole year. Wow. Yes, I had to mic Obama. I traveled in 2008. I spent um, like 238 days on the road. 
Um, How was he to Mike? Oh, I, so he, <laughs> come on, give it to us. No, he he Does was. He smell good? Yeah. <laughs> you know that's so funny you said that. You know, miking him was fine. He was fine. He was great. It was never ever an issue. Um, he was just great. I mean, he was great. Oh, I, mean, I can tell you another story that's unrelated to Miking about him that was actually pretty wonderful. Mm -hmm. um, but my nephew at the time was probably eight years old, and my girlfriend's son um, was staying with me, and he was my, maybe 10. Mm -hmm. And they were so excited that I was going on the campaign with Obama that they... Um, asked if they could write him a letter and if I would give it to him. And I said, well, sure. I said, write the letter. I said, now, I haven't met him yet, but you know, I, I'll have to feel it out and, and I'll try to give him your letters. So they were so cute. They wrote these notes. Dear um, Obama, thank you for running for president. I hope you do good things for kids, you know, something like that. And they put them in envelopes and, and um, the first day I got on the plane, it just so happened, and the press would always sit in the back of the plane. Mm -hmm. The, the uh, crews would sit in the far back. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you'd have the print and then the correspondence and then his people and then he would be in the front. But anyway, you know, the, he would get up and stretch and walk to the back and, and sometimes talk to the press. And so the first day I'm on the plane, he got up and he was walking toward the back of the, the plane. And so I thought, oh shoot, you know, this is my, my opportunity. And I'm, I'm, I'm nervous about, you know, approaching him. And I, I get the, I pull the letters out and I sort of have them ready. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, maybe he'll come all the way to the back. And so he does. So as he comes back, he kind of looks at me and I just, I introduce myself and I said, hi, you know, my name is Cindy Gomes and I'm with CBS News. And I said, do you mind? And I have the letters in my hand. You could see it. And I said, do you mind? My, my nephews, um, wrote, they wrote you a note, <laughs> and they asked me to give it to you. And, and he says, oh, that's so nice. He says, oh, sure. So I hand him the, the, the letters. And he puts them in his pocket. And then, he, you know, and then he proceeds, and he goes back to the front of the plane. I think it was the next day he gets up. And he's coming toward the back of the plane. He's got two pieces of paper oh in his goodness. hands. And, you know, of course, as soon as the candidate's up, all the press is like, you know, they want to ask him questions and everybody's like getting ready. And he says, and I see that he's saying, no, 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 I'm just, just walking to the back of the plane. And he's coming toward me and I'm sitting there, I've got a tray of food. <laughs> and I see him coming toward me, I see the two little cards. I'm like, oh shoot, I think he's coming back toward me. And sure enough, he comes over to me and he hands me these two pieces of paper. He wrote them both personal notes. Get out of here. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for your kind, I wanna cry, it was so beautiful. Thank you so much for your kind notes. Um, dream big dreams, and he personalized each one. It was the most like. Oh my yeah, God. Yeah, it was really, really, really cool. Isn't that great? We'll have more of Cindy later. But now, back by popular demand, it's another edition of Know Your Damn History. Sing it with me. 
Know your damn history. One more time. Know your damn history. I just binged watched the series Mad Men, seven seasons of the mostly men and two women in the all-white world of Madison Avenue advertising during the 60s. There are a couple of splashes of color here and there as elevator operators, short-term girlfriends, and protest marchers. By the end of the series, a few black women were secretaries, and one had risen through the ranks to be office manager, but there were no people of color in the rooms as copywriters or agency executives. But in real-life Chicago in 1969, at the North Ad Agency, a black woman named Barbara Gardner Proctor was in the room. And when an idea for a hair care product consisted of parodying civil rights sit-ins with women doing a foam-in, Proctor didn't dig it. She said, I would never do that. And she was fired, but she wasn't done. She regrouped, borrowed money from friends, and talked the Small Business Administration into lending her $80,000 to fund her startup. She called her agency Proctor and Gardner, using her maiden and married name, and she made history as the first black woman in the United States to start her own ad agency. It was 1970. So let's retrace the birthing of this legend. Barbara Gardner Proctor studied English and education at Talladega College in Alabama and breezed through in three years, earning a teaching degree. When she found herself stranded in Chicago after spending all her money on a shopping spree for clothes for her first teaching gig, she got a job at the Urban League and later volunteered to organize a messy record store owned by Sid McCoy. Sid, who was also a talent scout for VJ Records, was so impressed with her work, he had her write liner notes for his label. In 1962, now as VJ's PR director, she traveled to Europe and swapped records by the Four Seasons, a VJ act, for a then-unknown group, the Beatles. Translation, it was a sister that first brought the Beatles to the U.S. way before Ed Sullivan. So show some respect. Can I get a witness? Wow. Her first ad agency job included writing copy for Pine Soul Cleaner. More agency gigs followed before that fateful hair foam in firing, which led to the creation of Procter & Gardner. Her first client was Jewel Foods, a Chicago supermarket chain, which I remember because I used to shop there when I lived in Chicago. They had some good bargains. At their height, Procter & Gardner represented Kraft and Sears, but Barbara Proctor refused to represent lucrative products like cigarettes and liquor, which she considered detrimental to women and black people. That's right. She was a registered Republican who was mentioned by President Ronald Reagan in 1984 during his State of the Union address as a small business success story. Barbara Gardner Proctor was 86 when she died on December 19th, 2018. We love this quote of hers. You can only do it when you don't know that you can't do it. Right on, Barbara Gardner Proctor.
I consider myself a fashion stylist, a fashion editor. I consider myself a uh, image director still. Um, now that I'm doing theater, television, and film, it, those are different titles. So um, on Broadway, I am a star dresser, dressing the leads. In television and film, I'm a costumer, key costumer, star costumer, and so I do it all. I want to become recession-proof. I want to become fail-proof. So I just try and do so many different things that still is the core of who I am. Just so that if one thing slows down, I'm doing this and I'm still loving what I'm doing and it's not a departure from what I'm doing. That's our friend Alexander Allen, a multi-talented celebrity stylist. He's worked with Jennifer Lopez, Pink, Eve, and most recently for Madonna's Madame X tour. Alexander gives us the lowdown on what it takes to be a success on the hard scrabble streets of style. So we're here at Fig and Olive in the West Village and um, Alexander, how would you define style? Style is something that's innate. It's truly innate. It's something that um, cannot be produced and manufactured. You either have it or you don't. And you may be able to develop it over time, but is it really one's style or is it the style influence of your surroundings? Mm -hmm. A good case in point to me would be like someone like Rihanna. Um, when she first came out, I wasn't paying attention to her style, wasn't paying attention to her visual. Yeah, she was a pretty girl, but then over time, look what has evolved. Not to say that it wasn't there initially. Right. It could have been there behind the scenes or whatever, but I didn't see it as an artist. But now look at her, like she's this major style icon. But again, is it innate or is it a product of being around so many um, stylists and traveling the world and picking things up from here and there and now it has evolved into what it is. I can say someone instantaneously who had personal style too, like a Madonna and Prince. Because you can see once they first came on the scene, they had their own style. It wasn't something that you saw anyone else wearing, whatever, whatever. So that's what style is, is really having your own aesthetic, your own approach to fashion, whether you can afford it or not. And that's the true sense of style, you know what I mean? Because if you can't afford it, let's see how you, you know, uh, present yourself to the world. It's totally an art. And it's even more artistic if you can combine high and low. That's, I was gonna ask about that. You know what I mean? Because it's always, anybody can go to a showroom or um, to a boutique and purchase something that the designer sent down the runway or that they're showcasing in the storefront or on a mannequin or have merchandise in the store. It's like, oh yeah, I want that from head to toe. But mix it up. Show me something high and low. Show me what you can do. And that's true style. Just going back a little bit, just I want to fill in a little on your background. Yeah. Um, I'm a native New Yorker and my... I went to college in Maryland, Baltimore, Maryland. Oh. Did you study fashion or design? No, I studied telecommunications really? with a concentration in public relations. Wow. So Which it worked. Yeah. But initially, I went there for civil engineering because I love math. 
but yeah, I love, love math and all of that. But once I got to college and did like a math assessment test, I needed one extra year. I was going to need one extra year. I don't know if it was because of math or just because of the engineering program or because of both. Whatever. I wasn't hearing that. I was like, ooh, I got to find some, no, four and done. That's it. That's all you guys were getting from me. Were you interested in fashion and design and things like that prior to going to college? Yeah, that always, always. always yeah. I always knew because, you know, and that's, I'm going to jump a, ahead a little bit. And that's why, you know, I just finished working the Madonna tour. She was somebody who I grew up with. Like, I loved watching award shows, the red carpets, and reading magazines, and listening to the new music, and going to concerts. Like, everything I'm doing now, passion-wise or professionally, I've always done as a kid. So I always had that hunger. I just didn't know there was a profession for it. Everything happens for a reason. So now my vision is whoo, laser sharp. Right. You understand what I'm saying? Like, wait, wait, what? What's happening? Like, and that's how it is. That's how this industry is who you know, what you know. Is this person good? Referrals, word of mouth. It, it just happens. So it entails a lot of stress, a lot of late hours. And I'm not opposed to hard work. I love the grind. I love, like, I'm not opposed to it. I've been doing this now for 21 years. So when I first started, I coined the phrase celebrity fashion stylist because I knew I was a fashion stylist, um, but it was like, but I'm working with celebrities. So I just did that and put that on my business card. And then that's how it just took off and became a thing. Um, and around 2008, I became an image director working with Japanese contemporary artist uh, Takashi Murakami. An image director is literally what it says. I'm creating his whole image and directing it to the media because his work was seen. He wasn't visible, but he was always hanging around these notables, specifically hip hop hop artists like Pharrell and Jay-Z and Kanye West. He wanted to feel comfortable in that surrounding. So I had a great relationship with Louis Vuitton and he had a, a collaboration with them. So he asked them, they referred me and that's how that all came about. And I just felt extremely blessed with that because that was before, you know, and well, Kanye was the only one who had collaborated with him at that time okay. and maybe Pharrell. So it was like me as a stylist getting the opportunity to style this major art icon and then now a major hip hop art icon. It was just perfect. So I presented traditional items and I presented hip hop items and we went with both. We just acclimated to whatever event or fashion magazine we were styling for. And it, it was just very comfortable. Now, I will say there was one instance where some of his people thought maybe he was being too hip-hop. You know, and you get situations like that where uh, these handlers are very protective of their clients, and I completely get it. Right. But they are not in the room with me when the artist is saying, hey, I like this. They don't always know. They don't always know. And then it's also, that's an art form in itself, and it's something that... Prior to entering into this business, you don't really think about it. You just think about, hey, I'm going to be creative, da, da, da. but it's a business. And there's, again, people 
um, being protective of their territory, which can be their clients. Again, I get it all, but it's having that dis diplomacy and marrying everyone's opinion, and that's a true testament to a great stylist. That's the challenge. That's a challenge. That's a challenge. <laughs> yeah. But, I, you know, I, I'm masterful at it right now. Uh -huh. You know what I mean? Because in the beginning, it's all about you and you being creative and everything of that nature. But you'll soon come to learn that, no, these aren't models. These are notables. These are artists. These are musicians. These are um, personalities. So you have to take into consideration what they want to do and how they want to look as opposed to a model and you're just doing an editorial put shoot, on. put this on, zip it, and walk out there. Yeah, I've just learned to appease everyone. And again, that had to come with growth because my first major client was Eve and I had it great because when it came to fashion, it was just her and I. She had a team, she had managers, she had publicists, it did not matter. It was what she and I discussed. Period. And that's what I was, that's how I was ushered into this business. And that's how I was um, accustomed to working for four years. So it wasn't until she moved to LA to do her television show where I had to really learn how to appease everyone's opinions because previously I didn't have that. I didn't have to deal with that. But I'm grateful, you know what I mean? Because with that comes growth. And with that, you know how to enter into so many different circles and not just be a brat. Like, no, I wanted her to wear or him to wear this. Yeah. It's like... Is she your first celebrity client? Yes and no. No, meaning she wasn't the first celebrity that I touched. Yes, meaning she was my first celebrity consistent client. You know what I mean? So um, the very first experience in styling would have been with Pink, who was virtually unknown at the time. She was now, you know, working on her debut album, but she sang for us at the photo shoot. And I was like, who is this girl? Because she's white, but she sounds black. She has this raspy voice. Like, she didn't give a F. Like, she was who she was. I was like, this girl is going far, and I'm blessed to be here. You know what I mean? And, and now look at her. But uh, you were there as what? I was there as an intern, as an intern. because I was the PR assistant at DKNY okay. and I befriended her stylist at the time and I was telling him because I knew I was trying to find my exit. I was like, I like this, but I don't love it. I'm trying to find what I love. So um, you knew you loved I knew I love fashion, models, celebrity music, but I just didn't know how to combine all of those efforts. So that's why I was like, hey, you know, do you mind if I, um, you know, come to you on a set and see how it works? Because he needed me for the clothing and I saw an opportunity where I needed, so we were helping one another. And he said yes, and I was there. I was like, what? I create my own hours, I make great money, I'm with, I do fashion, but I'm also with this you know, amazing musician. I was like, this is it. And I just found it so and I stuck you, with it. You approached her? No, I approached him, the stylist. the stylist. So that's how I was brought on. So she and I, we didn't really have heavy interaction. Mm -hmm. It was just, hi, how are you? Da 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 da. I, you know, I was just present mm -hmm. and pleasant. Mm -hmm. And so was she. Mm -hmm. So I, 
I was just learning, so I wasn't trying to get a client or anything. Everything happened organically. At the time, this stylist was working with all of the major A-listers, Pink, Eve, Tony Braxton, Kelly Price, Aretha Franklin. So it was amazing, but it was also um, a learning experience because you can't have all of those major artists at the same time no, because you can't be present. It's physically impossible. So people knew of me and they just started reaching out to me because they, they knew I was qualified because I was working with the stylist. But then they also wanted somebody from that environment to physically be there. Be so that's how it just started to happen organically. And, you know, I approached no one. People started approaching me. It became a little awkward. I told them at certain times, but things just happened. Again, going back to territory. And I'm very cognizant of that because I don't ever want, I believe heavily in karma, so I'm not going to do something to someone and then turn around and don't want it done to me. Like, it's going to happen. So I was always protective of that. And, you know, I just made sure that everyone knew what was going on. Was it like a New Year's resolution? I am starting my own thing? Mm, it was after the, um, the experience with Pink. I was like, ooh, I'm doing this. That's so exciting. Made it that was brave to Yeah, you. yeah. But when you're young, you're fearless. <laughs> You know what I mean? You don't really have bills. I'm still living at home. I was young. Okay, so it's okay. like, so let's right. make this happen. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, let's go. Yeah. And I went. With me, it's like, I'm a go-getter. You know, I, I get my, I secure my own work. You know, I don't have an agent, don't have a manager. You don't? Aside from God, no. Oh, here we go. <laughs> Aside from God. No. Well, 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 well. <laughs> You know, he's pretty connected. <laughs> he is pretty connected. You know? Some of God's business. Yeah. I hooked the brother up. With wings in the corner. Oh, here comes the food. Yeah. That's a nice looking salmon salad. Yeah. Cauliflower is good. It is good. Yeah. yeah. Um, Madonna, what was, the, I mean, you grew up watching her, can you tell us a little about what that was like? You know, I'm always on the radar of what she's doing, so I heard she's doing a theater tour. I've worked with many of artists, but she's a rare breed. She's heavily, heavily guarded. Oh, really? So there's a lot of people around her. Security, security, 24-7. You don't get a chance to speak to her. I'm this close to her all the time. But you don't really get a chance to converse with her unless you're a part of the core team. You know what I mean? Like if you're a dancer or if you're giving her instructions, because you got to also think about it. When I came into the venture, it's rehearsal time. So it's no time to like, hey, no, 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 no. No, no, you're not going to be chatting it up. And because she's so focused, when I tell you I always thought she was a beast, she is definitely the queen. She's on the mic, calling all the shots. She's 61. She will show up at eight o'clock at night, leave six o'clock in the morning. 61. When it came closer to opening night, we're doing the show twice a day. She would do it, it back to back. She would do the concert a half an hour later, her stand-in would do her concert while she's sitting in the audience taking notes. Nope. 
the graphics should be here. Oh, the are you serious? Beast. That's how she saw everything. She's the beast. Oh. I realized there was a lot more to her than met the eye when I saw Truth or Dare. Because this woman works harder than just about anybody I've ever seen. Yeah. You know, I'd never seen anything like that. It's very true. And I saw it firsthand. Mm. Uh, and I was very impressed, though. Cheers. Cheers to that. I'm taking notes. Cheers. <laughs> Cindy was a singer touring for 10 years with artists like Smokey Robinson and Najee and decided she was looking for some stability when a chance meeting led her to an administrative gig at CBS. What does uh, being a unit manager entail? It's administrative. It's payroll, financial reports, basically accounting for the money that the Bureau is spending, like what it's costing to do a story. So that encompasses the travel and the freelance hires and the this and all kinds of stuff, all the stuff that I hate. <laughs> but it was a job at that point, you know, it's been 10 years of the music thing. I had kind of ran the whole gamut. I did so much, traveled all over the country. And I was sort of like, again, I had two goals in my life, music, television, and now here I was in the news division going, you know, this could be an opportunity to transition mm -hmm. to something a little more stable and I was I never saw myself as that person that was just gonna be that diehard singing you know in little clubs till I'm 50 I just you know it's a hard I, life it's hard and I kind of was ready to have more stability in my mm -hmm. life so I did that for three years and after three years I was just like oh this is so boring <laughs> but I was getting to know all the crews Quite frankly, I'm seeing the timesheets and I'm like, wow, they got to do all this great stuff wow. and traveling. And of course the money was good. But it didn't it didn't occur to me at you know, right away that it was something I could do. But then there was a, a sound man who was retiring. Mm -hmm. So one day jokingly, I said to Terry, you know, I'm getting kind of bored. You know, I'm doing this, you know, it's it's just, I'm sort of like not really challenged in this, this job. And, and I think I could be a sound person. And she just kind of looked at me. Um, and I said, yeah, I said, I mean, you know, I worked in the music business. I, I've been in studios. Um, there aren't any women. So then she came back and said, hey, you know, I kind of talked to the, the guy, the crews. And they think, sure, why not? Let's try her out. Let's, we'll, you know, we'll train her. But the deal was, you have to quit your job. We're going to try you out for six months. And then if, if it didn't work out, you know, you're out of a job. Asked out, I'd just be out of a job. I said, okay, I'll do it. I'll, I'll do it. What do I have to lose? And, um, but it wasn't easy. Now I was going into this department, there was only one other woman, and she was a camera person, and then I had to kind of work with all of these guys, and most of them were on board with me coming over, but some were sort of like, oh, she was an accountant. I, you know, I can't tell you how many people said to me, oh, what's it like leaving um, you know, the accountant business? And it was really, really uncomfortable a lot because I would end up on these big remotes and these big jobs with all men mm -hmm. and not everybody wanted to help me quite frankly there were I think people who kind of would have been okay with me failing you know did anybody ever 
try to sabotage you? Did you feel? I felt there was definitely like trying to get equipment. I, I remember the first package I got on my first out of town shoot, we were doing a walk and talk and I had given two wirelesses to the correspondent and the, the subject. And all of a sudden the sound crapped out on one of the mics. And so I'm, I'm like looking in my bag and I see that the whole entire receiver just like fell apart. Well, I didn't know how to fix how that, it yeah. and how did that happen? And I don't want to say, <laughs> but you know, like everything was an issue. I mean, I couldn't ask for a windscreen without getting like, well, what do you need that for? I couldn't really ask people for help. You know what I mean? Like I had to kind of figure out stuff on my own. She doesn't belong here. Today. Right, right. And then there was that, like, if I asked for help, it would seem like I didn't know what I was doing. But I didn't know what I was doing. I had, you know, good ears and, you know, I could learn anything. But when it came to troubleshooting, mm -hmm. you know, and then having to ask somebody, oh, you know, could you show me how to fix this? Or I, you know, was really, really uncomfortable. But you know what? I had a couple of hiccups in that during that six month period and I thought, oh my God, I don't know. But then I just had this this will. I'm like, I'm keeping this job. I don't care if, if they don't <laughs> they don't feel comfortable. I'm not going anywhere. Right. So get used to it. As an editor, when I saw your name on the tape, <laughs> it was like the sound is gonna be tight. See. <laughs> I don't have to worry Isn't about that something? I swear to God. Wow. Thank you. Thank so Wow. Um, Cindy Gomes. That should be on your business card. Cindy yeah. Gomes. Her shit is tight. tight. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, that's our show. Thanks to our fabulous guests, CBS News sound technician Cindy Gomes and celebrity stylist Alexander Allen. We appreciate you. Holla. The Giles Files was created by Nancy Giles and Nancy Wyatt, produced, directed, and edited by Nancy Wyatt, and recorded at our studios in Weehawken, New Jersey. Special thanks to Fig and Olive Restaurant in New York City. Ooh, we had a yummy meal during our interview with Alexander. We'll be back soon with another episode of The Giles Files, okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs>